Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. The Real and the Unreal, Chapter 2 of Franz Hartman's Magic, White and Black, by popular demand, you know who you are. Allah, Bismillah, God is One, Quran. Everywhere, in the broad expanse of the universe, we see an almost infinite variety of forms, belonging to different kingdoms and species, and exhibiting an endless variety of appearances. The substance of which those forms are composed may, for aught we know, consist essentially of the same primordial material, forming the basis of their constitution. Although the qualities of the various bodies may differ from each other, and it is far more reasonable to suppose that this one primordial eternal essence exists and appears in the course of evolution in various forms, than to believe that a number of different original substances may have come into existence either by being created out of nothing or otherwise. What this primordial essence, this immaterial substance, may be, we do not know. We only know of its manifestation in forms which we call things. Whatever may find expression in one form or another may be called a thing, and a thing may change its substance, and yet the form remain the same, or its form may change and the substance remain. Water may be frozen into solid ice or be transformed by heat into invisible vapor, and vapor may be chemically decomposed into hydrogen and oxygen. Yet, if the necessary conditions are given, the energies which previously formed water will form water again. The forms and attributes change, but the elements remain the same, and may combine again in certain stipulated proportions, regulated by the law of attraction. <laughs> As this hypothetical primordial substance or principle has no attributes which we can perceive with our senses, we cannot see it or feel it, and we therefore do not know the real substance of a thing. We only distinguish the peculiarities of the attributes of its form, and for the purpose of distinction and classification we give it a name. We may gradually deprive a thing of some of its attributes or substance and change its form, and yet it remains that thing as long as its character remains. And even after we destroy its form and dissolve its substance, the character of the thing still remains as an idea in the subjective world, where we cannot destroy it. And we may clothe the old idea with the new attributes and produce it under a new form on the objective plane. The thing exists as long as its character exists, only when it changes its character it ceases to be. A material thing is only the symbol or the representation of an idea. We may give it a name, but the thing itself remains forever hidden behind the veil. If we could on the physical plane separate a single substance from its attributes and endow it with others at will, then one body could be transformed into another, as, for instance, base metals be transformed into gold. But unless we change the character of a thing, a mere change of its form will only affect its external appearance. By way of illustration, let us look at a stick. It is made of wood, but this is not essential. It might be made of something else and still be a stick. We do not perceive the stick itself, we only see its attributes, its extension and color and density. We feel its weight, and we hear its sound if we strike it. Each of these attributes, for all of them, may be changed, and it may remain a stick for all that, as long as its character is not lost. Because that which essentially constitutes it a stick is its character or an idea which has not necessarily a definite form. Let us endow that formless idea with new attributes that will change its character, and we shall have transformed our ideal stick into anything we choose to make of it. We cannot change copper into gold on the physical plane. We cannot change a man into a physical child. But we may daily transform our desires, our aspirations, 
and tastes by the omnipotent power of the will. In doing this, we change our character and make of man, even on the physical plane, a different being. Nobody ever saw a real man. We only perceive the qualities which he possesses. Man cannot see himself. He speaks of his body, his soul, his spirit. It is only the combination of the three which constitutes what we consider a man. The ego, in which his character rests, is something for which we have no conception. As an idea, and yet an individual unit, he enters the world of matter, evolutes a new personality, obtains new experience and knowledge, passes through the pleasures and vicissitudes of life, and through the valley of death, and enters again into the realm where, in the course of ages, his form will cease to exist, to appear again in a form upon the scene when the hour for his reappearance strikes. His form and personality change, his real ego remains the same and yet not the same, because during life it acquires new attributes and changes its characteristics. Note, a true appreciation of the essential nature of man will show that the repeated reincarnation of the human monad in successive personalities is a scientific necessity. How could it be possible for a man to develop into a state of perfection? if the time of his spiritual growth were restricted to the period of one short existence upon this globe. If he could go on and develop without having a physical body, then why should it have been necessary for him to take a physical body at all? It is unreasonable to suppose that the spiritual germ of a man begins its existence at the time of the birth of the physical body, or that the physical parents of the child could be the generators of the spiritual monad. If the spiritual monad existed before the body was born, and could develop without it, what would be the use of its entering any body at all? We see that a plant ceases to grow when its roots are torn from the soil, and when they are replaced into the soil the growth may continue. Likewise the human spirit, man's higher self, takes root in the physical organism of man, and develops a soul through the latter, but when death tears out the roots, the soul rests and ceases to grow, until it finds again a physical organism to acquire new conditions for continued growth, and to improve its own real self. What can this real ego be, which lives through death and changes during life, unless it is the will itself? obtaining relative consciousness by coming in contact with matter. Is any man certain of his own existence? All the proof we have of our existence is in our consciousness, in the feeling of the I am, in which is the realization of our existence. Every other state of consciousness is subject to change. The consciousness of one moment differs from that of another, according to the changes which take place in the conditions which surround us and according to the variety of our impressions. We are craving for change and death. To remain always the same would be torture. Old impressions die, and are replaced with new ones, and we rejoice to see the old ones die, so that the new ones may step into their places. We do not make our impressions ourselves, but we receive them from the outside world. If it were possible that two or more persons could be born and educated under exactly the same conditions, having the same character and receiving always the same impressions, they would always have the same thoughts, the same feelings and desires. Their consciousness would be identical, and they might be considered as forming collectively only one person. A person having forgotten all the mental impressions he ever received, and receiving no new ones, might exist for ages, living in eternal imbecility, with no consciousness whatever except the consciousness of the I am, and that consciousness could not cease to exist as long as there is in him that will which enables him to be. Note, this is the only possible condition in which a person who has, during his earthly life, acquired no spiritual possessions can possibly exist after death. 
A person whose whole attention is given to sensual pleasures or to merely intellectual pursuits on the material plane carries nothing with him into the subjective existence after the death of the body which can exist permanently. Nor could it be otherwise, for it is not he who dies. It is the false egos dying in him. A man who does not know his own true self cannot die, because he has not yet come to life. It is only nature living and dying in him. His sensations leave him at death, and the image caused in his mind by the recollection of the superficial knowledge which he has acquired during life will gradually fade away. The intellectual forces which have been set into motion by his scientific pursuits will be exhausted, and after that time the spirit of such a person, even if he has been during life the greatest scientist, speculator, and logician, will be nothing but an imbecile being, having merely the feeling that he exists, living in darkness, and being drawn irresistibly towards reincarnation, seeking to re-embody itself again under any circumstances whatever to escape from nothingness into existence. But he who acquires spiritual self-consciousness will be self-luminous and live in the eternal light. He brings a light with him into the darkness, and that light will not be distinguished, for it is eternal, while the light of this world is like darkness to him. And now, a word from our sponsors. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. Experience the empowering feeling of the Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now for April 1st. Lease the 2024 RX 350 Premium All-Wheel Drive for $5.28 a month for 36 months with $49.99 to its signing. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Call 1-800-USA-LEXUS for important lease offer and pricing details. Not all customers will qualify. Offer in the Lexus Eastern area and it's April 1st, 2024. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Under whatever form life may exist, it is only relative. A stone, a plant, an animal, a man or god, each has an existence of its own, and each one exists only for the others. As long as the others are conscious of his existence, man looks upon the existence below him as incomplete, and the incomplete beings below him know little about him. Man knows little about any superior beings and yet there may be such looking upon him with pity as they would look upon an inferior animal that has not yet awakened to a realization of its own existence. Those who are supposed to know inform us that there is no being in the universe superior to the spiritual regenerated man, but that there are innumerable invisible beings who are either far superior or inferior to mortal man as we know him. In other words, the highest beings in the universe are such as have once been men, but the men and women of our present civilization may have to progress through millions of ages before they attain that state of perfection which such beings possess. We are accustomed to look upon that which we perceive with our senses as real, and upon everything else as unreal, and yet... Our daily experience teaches us that our senses cannot be trusted if we wish to distinguish between the true and the false. We see the sun rise in the east, see him travel along the sky during the day and disappear again in the west. But every child nowadays knows that this apparent movement is only an illusion caused by the turning of the earth. At night we see the fixed stars above our heads they look insignificant compared with the wide expanse of the ocean and the earth, and yet we believe that they are blazing suns in comparison with which our mother earth is only a speck of dust. Nothing seems to us more quiet and tranquil than the solid rocks under our feet, and yet the earth whereon we live whirls with tremendous velocity through space. 
The mountains seem to be everlasting, but continents sink beneath the waters of the ocean and rise again above its surface. Below our feet moves, with ebbs and tides, the swelling bosom of our apparently solid Mother Earth. Above our head seems to be nothing tangible, and yet we live on the very bottom of the airy ocean above us, and do not know the things that may perhaps live in its currents or upon its surface. A stream of light seems to descend from the sun to our planet, and yet darkness is said to exist between the atmosphere of the earth and the sun, where no meteoric matter exists to cause a reflection, while again we are surrounded by an ocean of light of a higher order, which appears to us to be darkness, because the nerves of our bodies have not yet been sufficiently developed to react under the influence of the astral light. The image reflected in the mirror seems a reality to the unreasoning mind, and the voice of an echo may be mistaken for the voice of a man, the elemental forces of nature may be loaded with the products of our own thoughts, and we may listen to their echo, believing it to be the voices of spirits of the departed. We often dream when awake, and while believing to be awake, we may be asleep. It is not scientific to say we are asleep, as long as we do not know who we are. We can only truly say that such and such functions of a physical or psychical organism, which we call our own, are asleep or inactive, while others are active and awake. We may be fully awake relatively to one thing and asleep relatively to another. A somnambule's body may be in a state resembling death, while his higher consciousness is fully alive and has even far superior powers of perception than it could employ if all the activity of his life principle were engaged in performing the functions of his lower organism. Solid matter looked at with the physical eye appears as a dense mass of unchangeable something, but examined with the eye of the intellect, it appears as an aggregation of centers of energy easily penetrable to thought. A solid mass is therefore in reality a concentration of force, and what we may behold in the form of matter of any kind is only the symbol of stored-up energy, a visible expression of the invisible force residing in matter. Seen with the eyes of the spirit, matter and force are simply known to be only one. The twofold activity of one eternal reality, the twofold manifestation of eternal power, Matter is an external, visible manifestation of force, having become latent. Spirit is an internal, invisible, active power. Both are the two different modes of manifestation of one primal cause. If we turn from the consideration of form to that of space, and examine what relation extension and duration bear to the consciousness of forms, we find that their qualities change according to our standard of measurement and according to our mode of perception. To an animalcule in a drop of water, that drop may appear as an ocean, and to an insect living on a leaf, that leaf may constitute a world. If during our sleep the whole of the visible world were to shrink to the size of a walnut or expand to a thousandfold its present dimensions on awakening, we should perceive no change, provided that change had equally affected everything, including ourselves. A child has no conception of its true relation to space, and may try to grasp the moon with its hands, and a person who has been born blind and is afterwards made to see cannot judge of distances correctly. Our thoughts know of no intervening space when they travel from one part of the globe to another in an almost imperceptible space of time. Our conceptions of our relation to space are based upon experience and memory acquired in our present condition. If we were moving among entirely different conditions, our experiences, and consequently our conceptions, would be entirely different. Our idea of relative space is a mode of perception of distance, and there appear to be as many dimensions of space as there are modes of perception or consciousness. Space, relatively to form, can only have three dimensions, because all forms are composed of three dimensions, length, thickness, and height. 
a consciousness existing in a mathematical point could have no conception of form, because such a point has no form. A thickness could have no conception of form, because the former, having only one, and the latter only two extensions, cannot exist as forms, but only as mathematical abstractions. Consciousness, in the absolute sense, is without form, but entering into relation to form, its relation to space will be threefold, because three is the number of form. It is evidently an absurdity to talk about forms existing in a fourth dimension of space, because three is the number of form, and no form whatever, whether visible or invisible, can possibly exist without possessing the three factors, which are necessary to constitute it a form, namely length, breadth, and thickness. There may be innumerable invisible powers in space, but whenever any such power manifests itself in a form, it always belongs to a three dimensions of space. Absolute space, like matter and motion, is fundamentally one, and has no dimensions for any body. It only manifests dimensions when it becomes relative to forms, and forms are necessarily always three-dimensional. Space in the absolute is independent of form, but forms cannot exist independent of space. We may imagine ourselves to be in the midst of a solid rock, and we will be there in space, although there will be no room in which we could move. Everyone knows that there exists a difference between good and evil, between love and hate, between knowledge and ignorance. But if two things or ideas differ from one each other, there is the idea of a distance of some kind between them. And distance means space, but a space that has in such cases no relation to form, and of which we can form no conception. As our conception of space is only relative, so is our conception of time. It is not time itself, but its measurement, of which we are conscious. And time is nothing to us unless in connection with our association of ideas. The human mind can only receive a small number of impressions per second. If we were to receive only one impression per hour, our life would seem exceedingly short. And if we were able to receive, for instance, the impression of each single undulation of a yellow ray of light whose vibration number 509 billions per second, a single day in our life would appear to be an eternity without end. To a prisoner in a dungeon who has no occupation, time may seem extremely long, while for him who is actively engaged it passes quickly. During sleep we have no conception of time, but a sleepless night passed in suffering seems very long. During a few seconds of time we may, in a dream, pass through experiences which would require a number of years in the regular course of events, while in the unconscious state time has no existence for us. In books on mystical subjects we find, often, accounts of a person having dreamed in a short moment of time things which we should suppose that it would take hours to dream them. For instance, the following. A traveler arrived late at night at a station. He was very fatigued, and as the conductor opened the door of the car, he entered and immediately fell asleep. He dreamed that he was at home and living with his family, that he fell in love with a girl and married her, that he lived happy until he meddled with political affairs and was arrested on a charge of having entered into a conspiracy against the government. He was tried and condemned to be shot and led out to be executed. Arrived at the place of execution, the command was given and the soldiers fired at him. He awoke at the noise caused by the shutting of the door of the car, which the conductor had shut behind him when our friend entered. It seems probable that the noise produced by shutting that door caused the whole dream. In this state, when the experiences of an internal state mingles with the sensations of the external consciousness, the most erroneous impressions may be produced, because the intellect labors, logic and reflection exist. But reason does not act sufficiently powerful to discriminate between the true and the false. But what is the difference between objective and subjective states of existence? Our bodies do not cease to live while we are asleep, but we have a different kind of perception in either state. The popular idea is that objective perceptions are real, and subjective ones only the products of our imagination.
but a similar reflection will show that all perceptions, the objective as well as the subjective ones, are results of our imagination. If we look at a tree, the tree does not come into our eye, but its picture appears in our mind. If we look at a form, we perceive an impression made in our mind by the image of an object existing beyond the limits of our body. If we look at a subjective image or a thought, whether it be of our own creation or caused by the influence of another being, we perceive the impression which it produces on our mind. In either case, the pictures exist in our mind, and we perceive nothing but the impressions made on the mind, and the only difference between the two is that in the former case the impression is caused by something visible, and in the latter by something invisible to our physical sight the internal impressions may be as real as the external ones. If we close our eyes, the latter vanish and the former appear more distinct. If our eyes are open, the former may become mixed with the latter or be entirely superseded by them on account of their superior strength. The fact is that everything appears either objective or subjective according to the state of consciousness of the perceiver, and what may appear to him entirely subjective in one state may appear to him objectively in another. The highest truths have to him who can realize them an objective existence. The grossest material forms have no existence to him who cannot perceive them. The basis upon which all exhibition of magical power rests is a knowledge of the relations that exist between object and subject. If we conceive in our mind of the picture of a thing we have seen before, an objective form of that thing comes into existence within our own mind and is composed of the substance of our own mind. If by continual practice we gain sufficient power to hold on to that image and to prevent it from being driven away and dispersed by other thoughts, it will become comparatively dense and be projected upon the mental sphere of others so that the latter may actually believe to cease objectively that which exists merely as an image within our own mind. But he who cannot hold on to a thought and control it at will cannot produce its reflections upon the minds of others, and therefore such psychological experiments often fail, not on account of any absolute impossibility to perform them, but on account of the weakness of those who desire to experiment but have not the power to control their own thoughts and to render them solid enough for transmission. Everything is either a reality or a delusion, according to the standpoint from which we view it. The words real and unreal are only relative terms, and what may seem real in one state of existence appears unreal in another. Money, luxury, fame, adulation, etc., appear very real to those who need them, Seen from the point of view of a god who has no use for them, they appear to be only illusions. That which we realize is real to us, however unreal it may appear to another, and the appearance of reality changes as our consciousness changes. If my imagination is powerful enough to make me firmly believe in the presence of an angel, that angel will be there, alive and real, my own creation, no matter how invisible and unreal he may be to another. If your mind can create for you a paradise in a wilderness, that paradise will have for you an objective existence. Everything that exists, exists in the universal mind. If the individual mind becomes conscious of his relation to a thing, it begins to perceive it. No man can correctly conceive of a thing that does not exist. He cannot know anything with which he stands in no relation. To perceive three facts are necessary, the perception, the perceiver, and the thing that is the object of perception. If they exist on entirely different planes and cannot enter into relationship, no perception will be possible between them, and they will not know each other. If they are one, there will be no perception, because the three being one, there can be no relation between them. If I wish to look at my face and am not able to step out of myself, I must use a mirror to establish a relation between myself and the object of my perception. The mirror has no sensation, and I cannot see myself in the mirror. I can only see myself in my mind. 
the reflection of the mirror produces a reflection which is objective to my individual mind and which comes to my subjective perception. Looked at from the standpoint of individual perception, I and the image produced in my mind as well as the mirror have each a separate existence. But looked at from the standpoint of the absolute, myself, the image, and the mirror are only one. The difference between us is merely one of appearance. Reflection upon these facts will give us a key to an understanding of man's nature and some of his mysteries. We cannot objectively see the light or the truth as long as we are within the center of the one or the other. Only when we enter beyond the center of the light can we see the source of the latter. Only when we fall into error will we learn to appreciate the truth. As long as primordial man was one with the center of universal power from which he emanated as a spiritual ray or entity in the beginning, he could not know the divine source from which he came. The will and imagination of the universal mind were his own will and imagination. Only when he began to step out of himself could he begin to imagine that he existed as a separate self. Only when he began to act against the law did he begin to realize that there was another law than his own. When man, as a spiritual entity, having attained perfection, enters again into the center, his sense of self and separateness will be lost, but he will be in possession of knowledge. To see a thing, it must become objective. To know a thing, we must be separated from it. When we fully comprehend a thing, we become one with it and know it by knowing ourselves. This example is intended to illustrate the fundamental law of creation. The first great cause, so to say, stepping out of itself becomes its own mirror, and thereby establishes a relation with itself. God sees his face reflected in eternal nature. The universal mind sees itself reflected in the individual mind of man, the Father comes to relative consciousness in the Son, but when he again retires into himself, the relationship will cease. The Father will then be again absolutely one with the Son. He will again become one with himself. There will be no more relative consciousness, and Brahm will go to sleep until the night of creation has ceased. But God knows that he exists even after all his relation with external things has ceased, and does not need to look continually into a mirror to be reminded of that fact. Likewise, the absolute consciousness of the great I am is independent of the objective existence of nature, and he will still, quote, sit on the great white throne after the earth and the heaven fled away from his face. St. John, Revelation 22, 20.2. If the old maxim is true that it is above as it is below, it then follows that God never sleeps. Man's spirit is not unconscious when his physical body is asleep. On the contrary, it is more fully awake when centered in its own self-consciousness. Likewise, the sleep of Brahm during Pralaya can only refer to his external creative activity, but not to his celestial existence in his own self-conscious light. If the world is a manifestation of the universal mind, everything that exists must exist in that mind. There can be nothing beyond the universal mind, because it is necessarily infinite. It can only be one, and there can be no beyond. We exist in that mind and all we perceive of external objects is the impressions which they produce upon our individual minds through the medium of the senses or by a superior mode of perception. The superior powers of perception are those possessed by the inner man, and they become developed after the inner man awakens to self-consciousness. They correspond to the senses of the external man, such as seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, smelling, and other modes of perception which are not yet developed in the physical man. External sensual perceptions are necessary to see sensual things. The internal sensual perceptions are necessary to see internal things. Physical matter 
is as invisible to the spiritual sight as astral bodies are to the physical eyes, and as every object in nature has its astral counterpart within the physical form, it may see, hear, feel, taste, and smell with its astral senses those astral objects, and thereby know the attributes of the physical objects as well, or still better than the physical man might have been able to do with his physical senses. But neither the physical nor the astral senses will be able to perceive unless they are permeated by the light of the spirit which endows them with life. If everything that exists is mind, and if we ourselves are that mind, all the forms of the subjective as well as the objective words can be nothing else but states of our mind. Thought is the creative power in the universe. Thought germs grow in the mind as the seeds of plants grow in the soil of the earth. The latter are quickened into life by the light of the sun, the former by the light of intelligence, and the beginning of a day of creation, Brahm, begins to create, his thoughts call worlds into existence. Things are materialized thoughts, or states of mind having been rendered objective. Few persons have the power to think spontaneously and independently, although all may believe to have that power. If they were able to manipulate thought, they would be able to create. The majority of men only occupy themselves with the thoughts that come into their mind without their bidding. They are instruments or mediums through which the universal principle of mind thinks, but they are unable to originate a thought, much less to project it into objectivity through the power of the will. He who has gained the power to hold on to a thought may project it upon another, and the process will be facilitated if the receiver is in a passive state of sleep, hypnotism, or somnambulism. The expression, suggestion, is in such cases entirely inappropriate to describe what takes place. Induction would be more appropriate, for the passive person not merely acts upon the suggestion of his magnetizer, but his will becomes a helpless instrument through which the thoughts of the former are induced to act upon the subjective or objective plane. We usually look upon a thing as real if it is seen alike by several persons, while if only one person professes to see it, it being invisible to others, we may call it elusive. But all impressions produce a certain state of the mind, and a person must be in a condition or state of mind to enter into a relation with that state which the impression produces. All persons being in the same state of mind and receiving the same impression will perceive the same thing. But if their states differ, their perceptions will differ. Although the impression coming to their consciousness will be the same. A horse or a lion may be seen alike by everyone who has his normal senses developed, because all men having normal human senses may be in the same mental state. But if one is excited by fear or has his attention otherwise absorbed, his mental state will change and his perceptions will differ from that of the others. A drunkard in a state of delirium tremens may be leave to see worms and snakes crawling out over his body, his experience tells him that they have no external existence. Nevertheless, they are horrible realities to him, and he seeks to rid himself of their presence. They really exist for him as the products of his own mental condition, but they do not exist for others who do not share that condition. But if others were to enter the same state, they would see the same things, and he who sees them can make others see them provided he is able to communicate to them his own consciousness, that is to say, his own mental state. Our perceptions therefore differ, not only in proportion, as the impressions coming from the objects of our perception differ, but also according to our capacity to receive such impressions, or according to our own mental states. If we could develop a new sense, we would believe to be in a new world, and if our capacity to receive impressions were restricted to only one sense, we would only be able to conceive of that which could become manifest to us through that sense, and the world which we could perceive would be very limited. Let us suppose the existence of a being whose mode of perception were entirely different from our own, and who could enter into only one state of consciousness, for instance, that of hate having all his consciousness concentrated into his guiding passion, 
he could become aware of nothing else but of hate, such a god of hate, incapable of entering into any other mental state, could perceive no other states but those corresponding with his own. To such a being the whole world would be dark and void. Our oceans and mountains, our forests and rivers, would have no existence for him. But wherever a man or an animal would burn with hate, there would be perhaps a lurid glow, perceivable by him through the darkness, which would attract his attention and attract him, and on his approach that glow may burst into a flame in which the individual from whom it proceeded may be consumed. Any other mental state or passion may serve for a similar illustration. Hate attracts hate, and love attracts love, and a person full of hate is as incapable to love as a being full of love is incapable to hate. Both are mental states which, after a person has fully entered them, cannot be changed at will. Man is that which he really wills. His whole being is nothing else but the ultimate product of a will acting in him, not of his imaginary will, but of the real will, which is one and divine. The Bhagavad Gita says, quote, Those that are born under an evil destiny, having acquired evil tendencies by their conduct in formal lives, know not what it is to proceed in virtue or to recede from vice, nor is purity, veracity, or the practice of morality to be found in them. They say the world is without beginning and without end and without an Ishwar, that all things are conceived in the junction of these senses, and that attraction is the only cause. Those who believe that everything exists in consequence of the attraction of two principles forget that there could be no attraction if there were not some cause that produces the attraction, and that the attraction would cease as soon as the cause that produced it would cease to exist. They are the deluded followers of a doctrine which they themselves cannot seriously believe. They agree that out of nothing, nothing can come, and yet they believe that the power of attraction was caused by nothing, and that it continues to exist without a cause. They are the followers of the absurd too, which has no real existence, because the eternal one, divided into two parts, would not become two ones, but the two halves of a divided one, one is the number of unity, and two is division. The one divided into two ceases to exist as a one, and nothing new is thereby produced. If the plan for the construction of the world has been made according to the ideas of the followers of dualism, nothing could have come into existence that did not already exist at that time when nothing existed, because action and reaction, if any existed, would have been of equal power, and there could be no progressing of anything existing at present. If Ahuramazda, the principle of good, were of equal power with Araman, the principle of evil, there would be an end to all progression, and the state of the world from all eternity would have been the same. But behind Ahuramazda and Araman is the nameless and invisible fire, the law of evolution, and Ahura Mazda continually conquers Araman by the inherent power of good. If the Parsi worships the fire, he worships the invisible power of good. The visible fire and the visible sun are the symbols which represent to him the invisible power and spiritual sun, and it would be difficult to find any symbols in nature more fit to represent the infinite power of good and light by which the dark power of evil will be fully conquered in the end. Whatever this power of good may be, it is beyond the capacity of finite man to give it an appropriate name, or to describe it, because it is beyond the comprehension of mortal man. It has been called God, and as such it has many faces, because its aspect differs according to the standpoint from which we behold it. It is the supreme cause from which everything comes into existence. It must be absolute consciousness, wisdom, and power, love, intelligence, and life, because these attributes exist in its manifestations. 
and could not have come into existence without it. It has been called space, because everything exists in space, but space itself is incomprehensible to us, although we exist in it and are surrounded by it. Space is a term which has no meaning unless it means extension, and extension is an attribute of matter. But matter cannot exist without motion, and the motion of matter is caused by the law. Space, matter, and motion in the absolute are incomprehensible to us, because man, being a relative being, can only comprehend that to which he stands in relation. Being bound to a form, he can only know that which exists relatively to form. The Absolute, independent of relations and conditions, is the original cause of all manifestations of power. An attempt to describe it would be equivalent with an attempt to describe something which has no attributes, or of whose attributes we can form no exception. When Gautama Buddha was asked to describe the supreme source of all beings, he remained silent, because those who have reached a state in which they can realize what it is have no words to describe it, and those who cannot realize it would not be able to comprehend the description. Note Corinthians 12.4 To describe the Absolute, we must invest it with comprehensible attributes, and it then ceases to be the Absolute and becomes relative. Therefore, all theological discussions about the nature of God are useless because God has no natural attributes, but nature is his manifestation. If we use the word God in its legitimate meaning as good, then to deny the existence of God is an absurdity equivalent to denying one's own existence, because all existence can be nothing else but a manifestation of life as good. To declare to possess an intellectual knowledge of God is equally absurd, because we cannot know anything of which we cannot conceive. He can only be spiritually known, but not scientifically described, and the fight between so-called deists and atheists is a mere quarrel about words which have no definite meaning. Every man is himself a manifestation of God, and as each man's character differs from that of every other, so each man's idea of God differs from that of the rest, and each one has a God, an ideal of his own. Only when they all attain the same, the highest ideal, will they all have the same God. To him who does not believe in the power of good, the power of good does not exist, and its existence cannot be demonstrated to him. To him who feels the presence of good, good exists, and to him its existence cannot be disputed away. The ignorant cannot be made to realize the existence of knowledge unless he becomes knowing. Those who know cannot have their knowledge reasoned away unless they forget what they know. The caricatures of gods set up by the various churches as representations of the only true God are merely attempts to describe that which cannot be described. As every man has a highest ideal, a God of his own, which is a symbol of his aspirations, so every church has its peculiar God, who is an outgrowth or a product of evolution of the ideal necessities of that collective body called a church. They are all true gods to them, because they answer their needs, and as the requirements of the church change, so change their gods. Old gods are discarded and new ones put into their places. The god of the Christian differs from that of the Jews, and the Christian god of the 19th century is very different from the one that lived at the time of Torquemada and Peter Arbuus, and was pleased with torture and auto-de-fe. As long as men are imperfect, their gods will be imperfect. As they become more perfect, their gods will grow in perfection. And when all men are equally perfect, they will all have the same perfect god, the same highest spiritual ideal and the same universal reality, recognized alike by science and by religion because there can be only one supreme ideal, one absolute truth, whose realization is wisdom, whose manifestation is power expressed in nature, and whose most perfect production is ideal man. 
There are seven steps on the ladder, representing the religious development of mankind. On the first stage, man resembles an animal, conscious only of his instincts and bodily desires, without any conception of the divine element. On the second, he begins to have a presentiment of the existence of something higher. On the third, he begins to seek for that higher element. But his lower elements are still preponderating over the higher aspirations. On the fourth, his lower and higher desires are counterbalancing each other. At times he seeks for the higher, at other times he is again attracted to the lower. On the fifth, he anxiously seeks for the divine, but seeking it in the external he cannot find it. He then begins to seek for it within himself. On the sixth, he finds the divine element within himself and develops spiritual self-consciousness, which on the seventh grows into self-knowledge. Having arrived at the sixth, his spiritual senses begin to become alive and active, and he will then be able to recognize the presence of other spiritual entities existing on the same plane. His will then becomes free from every selfish desire. His thoughts become obedient to his will. His word becomes an act, and he may then rightfully be called an adept. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk